The Money Cafe is proudly brought to you by InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts. Diversified portfolios of ETFs with a capped fee. T's and C's apply. Find out more at investsmart.com.au. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and a columnist for The New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And we are The, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Now, Alan, let's, uh, let's start with the plugs this week. You know, you're multi-hatted. What have you got coming up next week? Something big? What is it? Quarterly essay on housing. 27,000 <laughs> pristine words. On the subject of the Great Divide, Australia's housing mess and how, how it happened and how we fix it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I failed to bring you I was going to get the inside scoop this morning. I came along with my sore back after cricket to staggered in here thinking, well, at least I'll get a bloody uh, copy of quarterly essay and you've left it at home. I have. Sorry. Um, yeah, I did get I did get a couple of advanced copies, but the launch is on November the 29th at Readings Bookstore in Hawthorne, where my son Chris will interview me. Um, you know, that'll uh, be tough. It'll, it'll be. <laughs> He'll be really coming off a long run at his dad, <laughs> won't he? <laughs> cola and cola, very good. And the other plug we've got to deal with is um, what's happening with people being able to subscribe to get your magnificent Saturday morning wrap? Well, so at the, uh, I, I wrongly thought that that was going to be separated off because what's happened is Eureka Report has been merged into Intelligent Investor. So all of Eureka Report content now is a part of Intelligent Investor. Uh, but And I thought that the weekend briefing at the same time would be separated as a separate... Um, subscription, uh, but that won't happen until June next year. At the moment, if you subscribe to Eureka Report, which includes, which is um, mainly the weekend briefing plus a few other things, uh, you get all of um, Intelligent Investor as well. So at the moment, until June next year, you subscribe to Eureka Report for three hundred sixty-three dollars a year, and you get the weekend briefing plus a few other stuff in Eureka Me? Report. I've got a fortnightly column as well, pal. Plus Stephen Main, <laughs> plus Tim Treadgold, Liz Moran. Oh, you've got a massive team of excellent contributors. Excellent contributors. Yeah. Um, no, I didn't mean, your to, I didn't mean to, to diminish the importance of those. However, uh, so at the moment, if you subscribe to your record report, you get all of that, all of that wonderful stuff, plus Intelligent Investor, which is a group of analysts um, analysing companies. Yeah. But if I can probably cut to the chase, because Alan can't say this, is that for nigh on 15 years, Alan's Saturday morning wrap has been the single best piece of broad markets, economics, business journalism in the country. And the idea is you could sell it on its own, Alan, it's so good. Uh, and at some point in next June, you will be able to sell it on its own and subscribe just to get that magnificent 5,000 word wrap or whatever it is. You always tell me to keep my columns below 2,000, but you always go to 5,000, I notice, pal. <laughs> Anyway, if you want to read 5,000 words it's of pearls, 5, no, it's not 5,000, no, no, it's lots. It's long, but it's brilliant. Um, and it'll be uh, to subscribe on its own. I mean, you, look, you can subscribe to it now for the same price as you will be able to next year, but you'll just get all this other stuff as well, which, you know, you may or may not want, but you could just turn it off. You could go to your My Account 
settings and turn the other stuff off if you wanted to. But so it really is possible to do that now. Anyway, it's seven, but it would be seven bucks a week. Do you think that's worth it? Oh, I think I think it's it's. I wouldn't miss it for the world. So um, there you are. There you go. Seven, nice seven, plug, Stephen. Seven Thank o'clock you. every Saturday morning, I wake up and oh, I've got four thousand words of Alan to soak up with twenty-seven graphs. And I love I love your song of the week too. You do these great YouTube videos, musicians' birthdays. It's very eclectic and interesting. Great way to start your weekend. Now enough of these plugs. Okay. What are we going to start with this well, week? We should do the AGM season. We just said. Farewell to Rupert Murdoch at 2 o'clock this morning, his last News Corp AGM. I set the alarm. I was six minutes late. I got got online at 2.06am and I logged um, three questions. They censored the Tony Abbott question, which was why did Tony Abbott get appointed to the Fox Corp board rather than the News Corp board, given that Fox Corp has nothing to do with Australia and all the News Corp value is in Australia. Censored. And the two they asked were, um, you know, well done. What are your favourite memories and do you have any regrets? And he just said, thanks. Uh, very few regrets. Thanks. That was a very long answer from Rupert. The other one was, are you going to get paid to be Emeritus Chairman? He said no. And then Robert Thompson popped in and said, oh, but we will be paying a few expenses, which is, you know, the private jet and uh, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. So, so he's off the payroll today. After 72 years, he's Apart finally few out expenses. of the boardroom. Apart. Apart from free access to the corporate jet and every other perk you can find. But he's gone. He's out. He's finished. And did they did they sing a song to mark the occasion? It was quite 19 minutes. You know, Rupert did about eight paragraphs. Uh, Robert Thompson just said, you I know, mean, great the, job. And it, But it was hardly a celebration. I think the thing to understand, which you understand better than most, is that... Um, it's, it's not a public company, it's a private company that happens to have a few annoying uh, 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 shareholders apart from the Murdochs in there. When, and that just, you know, well, they, a, they give the Murdoch, non-Murdoch shareholders as little as possible. Well, it's got, it's got a few shareholders, but I will give you one little stat. So the recent Qantas AGM, only 80 shareholders turned up in the room and only 210 were online for the AGM and only about 4,300 voted so that's a tiny turnout, which brought my memory back to the 2004 vote when Rupert moved from Adelaide to Delaware. And he put out an ASX announcement claiming that more than 100,000 shareholders had voted in favour. Now, this is the largest turnout in the history of Australian shareholder voting. And I would love to know how he got more than 100,000 shareholders to say, let's move to Delaware. When last night there were three of us asking questions, one bloke wanted to know if the Bible was available through HarperCollins, one bloke wanted to, one person unnamed wanted to know why there was a virtual AGM with no physical turn up. That's because you don't want to face to face them. And then I got my two questions and that was it. All done. 19 minutes. See you later. So do you believe that 100,000? I think there should be an inquiry into that. I, think it needs I don't to be think there's audited. going to be, Stephen, somehow. It's only 19 years ago. But, uh, you know, the origin vote coming up on November 23, they'll be lucky to get 20,000 shareholders to turn out and whether they sell origin for 20-odd billion. Yet somehow Rupert got over 100,000 shareholders to say, come with me to Delaware where I don't have to be very transparent. Anyway. Anyway. Um, I did six other AGMs yesterday. So it's the middle of this. Right now, my questions are being read out at the REA AGM. Some Rupert questions there in Richmond. I'm down here in Hawthorne with you. And yesterday we had 
Platinum so, Computer Chef Flight Centre, Capital Health, where Andrew Demetrio almost got voted out. So you're uh, you're terrorising corporate Australia en masse, Stephen. You are Six in one day. So you're um, just unbelievable. You are a um, a one man. When's the Investmart annual meeting? I should be going to that one, asking about your salary or something. When when's that coming up? Is that soon? Because Alan does. We 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 are working I'm, for a public I'm company. Certainly yeah, and I've not. Never gonna, annoyed them. I'm certainly not going to tell you, Stephen. No. Okay. All right. I might just look up the ASX uh, website. I think you'll Perhaps need it to. will be there. I don't own any shares. I, so. I voted. Comsec won't lend I against your stock. I voted my shares yesterday, actually. <laughs> <laughs> All in favour. All in favour of the directors who pay you? Yes. Yes, surprisingly enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, let's talk about uh, so the wages the thing wages yesterday. Started, well, yeah. it, was, it was 4% for the year, 1.3% for the quarter, which was the highest quarterly uh, rise in wages in, in uh, history, which was surprising, really. 1.3% for the quarter is the highest in history. 4% was the highest in a long time um, uh, for the year. So uh, the question, I guess, is whether this is good or bad because, you know, the fact that workers are getting more money is is great because they've been going backwards, still going backwards, but um, it, get, it gets to the point where, uh, you know, if, if wages rise too much, the Reserve Bank puts up interest rates again in order to crunch inflation. So, you know... Um, and we do, uh, we do have a question later on pointing out that we have the the most amount of um, variable interest rates on mortgages in the world. When you combine that with the fact that we have the most indebted households in the world, it means that the zapper of the Reserve Bank rate increases is lethal in Australia in terms of the, the hit to the hip pocket of those workers. And the other point that someone makes in the questions is that don't forget that wage increases are pre-tax. So if you're trying to keep up with inflation, it's pretty tough because you get a wage rise and you lose 30% of that on tax. But inflation is doesn't take tax into account. You know, you're just paying more for petrol and fruit and veggies and everything else. So, And what... Um what one of our questioners points out, with including a graph of that was published by the OECD, uh, which I actually had on the news, showing that Australia is the uh, uh, is showing the largest decline in real household gross disposable income per capita uh, in the world, the yeah. largest decline, five point one percent, which is uh, greater than the next one, which is Nor- Norway, and um, the average in the OECD has seen an increase. And well, the biggest Australia's driver of that is the interest rate increases on mortgages. Yeah. 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 Which In is, other words, uh, Reserve Bank, leave us alone, <laughs> as you've been saying, and not many others in the commentariat. That's correct. You're a bit of a lone voice, aren't you, saying, stop it, Miss Bullock. Yeah. Stephen Kukula says, is, doing, is saying that too. Yeah. Um, so Stephen and I are not collaborating, but no. we are. No, but you're the, you're the, the, you're the populists. That's right. The other, the other thing I want to mention before we get on to questions is uh, I wrote a column in the New Daily this morning about uh, the combination of two things. Um, the High Court decision in Vanderstock, which was a, a challenge by two, two electric vehicle drivers. Backed by the Commonwealth. Backed by the Commonwealth. Dodgy. Against Victoria's proposed uh, road user charge for electric vehicles, right? And uh, they won. 4-3 in the High Court. 
And so what the High Court did in, in overturning it, although the criticism of the Victorian EV road user charge was all based on, you know, the idea that it was sort of against the required energy trans- transition and moving people onto renewable energy and so on, the, the challenge was based on the Constitution, Section 90, which prohibits an excise. The state's, the state's charging excises. And um, the, the uh, Van der Stock, Mr Van der Stock and his co-challenger uh, plaintiff, um, as you say, supportive of the Commonwealth, challenged that saying that it was an excise and therefore was prohibited under the Constitution. And uh, they won. And what the High Court did was effectively overturn a 1974 decision um, that said that a tobacco licence was uh, not an excise and was therefore okay. And the High Court explicitly overturned that and said it was unsustainable and anomalous. So now we anomalous. can't do... I mean, when I was a Victorian Treasurer's press secretary, they, uh, one of the oil giants just rolled the fuel excise and tobacco excise got rolled and grog excise, so the feds had to come in with their own sort of excise copy and then pass it back to the states because it was just leaving massive holes in the state budgets because Australia's got the most lopsided system of federal state funding where the feds raise all the money but do stuff or work. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of welfare spending, obviously, but they basically raise, you know, $330 billion in income tax, $120 billion in company tax, and they don't do any infrastructure in the cities and all that, pay the teachers and the nurses and the coppers and all that hard work that the states have got to do. Yeah, so this, so this decision by the High Court actually puts a question mark over most of the state taxes. Mm. Um, so it's not just this EV road user charge that goes, but potentially stamp duty and gambling taxes and a whole lot of other state yeah. taxes. Well, that's why we're the world's biggest gamblers, you know, per capita, because it's one of the few revenue options that the states have got. So they go for it. That's right. But That's why we've got transurban, because the states, can't, the states can't afford to build the roads, so they get transurban to build the roads. But if the, if the casinos or Mr Matheson challenge that now in the High Court, they'll probably win under this new ruling. So I reckon there's a, you know, there's, the states are in real trouble. Well, it depends which states. If you're a resource state like Queensland, you've suddenly got $10 billion more than budgeted revenue from your coal royalty increase. And if you're WA, you, you're getting oh, yeah. $10 so billion. So WA and idle. Queensland are okay. They're but fine. Victoria is stuffed. They've sold everything off. There's nothing left to sell in Victoria. The debt's $150 billion. They're borrowing a billion a month, net, new money. And all they've got is property taxes that they can turn to. There's nothing left to privatise except for the water authorities. And they might and get knocked off. And, and they're spending and $20 billion a year on infrastructure when it used to be $5 billion a year just uh, 10 years ago. So they've gone and, crazy on the spend. And the other thing is that the uh, Federal Infrastructure Minister, Catherine King, said this week that we're, we're no longer going to fund state infrastructure 80-20. It's now 50-50. Uh, and uh, so you've got to come up with half the money. And the states, in particular Victoria, haven't got the money. Victoria should just miss an interest rate payment, I reckon to say federal policy, can't afford to pay back, and then the feds will just take over all the Victorian debt. Because basically, at the end of the day, there's an implied guarantee of all council and state debt by the federal credit rating, the national credit rating, and well, if so the state defaulted, like Victoria, you know, if Victoria didn't have the feds, we'd be broke. So the proposition that Victoria should default on its debt just rolled off your tongue, Stephen. You know, just like... As if it's nothing. Well, right? it's, it's obviously yeah, they're fine. not. No problem. Obviously they're not going to, but they only can borrow a billion dollars a month net new money at the moment. 
without being charged 15% like they're on the credit card because everyone assumes Canberra will stand by them because at the moment Canberra's already providing more than 30% of their revenue through GST and all the other grants that come from uh, the Canberra cash pile. Anyway, I'd recommend listeners look up uh, not only my column, but have a look at the and read read the judgment. Go onto the High Court website and read the judgment because, and in particular the two, um, the in particular the two dissenting judgments from uh, Justices Stewart and Edelman, because uh, Stewart said that uh, this judgment would uh, turn the states into fiscal minions well, they are. of the that, Commonwealth. It's correct, it's it's they are. That's right. I mean, the war, Second World War, they lost the income taxing power. Um, they are absolute client and, and states. Edelman says that it, it undermines the the whole federation. Hmm. What annoys me is that we can't have an Irish-style constitutional commission that regularly recommends constitutional amendments and that this wasn't fixed in 1974 at, to say that the states can lobby lob excises on sin industries like gambling and grog and fuel well, and tobacco. Just well, change the, the Constitution, no, that, that, was, that, that was what the 1974 judgment in the yeah, High Court said, and like, now it's been overturned. But it's like all this rubbish about if you're a dual citizen, you can't, you know, Barnaby Joyce and everyone else, you can't run for Parliament. Change the Constitution to say that you can run for Parliament. I mean, these people are hopeless. They never try and change the Constitution when there's a million things wrong in that 16,000-word document that should well, be modernised. Because they don't want to have referendums because, you know, referendums are hard. They get done easily. If there, should be, there should be ten changes to the Constitution every federal election, bipartisan, just tidying up documents. Like every second public company, AGM has a tidy up to their Constitution that goes through with 99% in favour. Before we get to questions, let's uh, just have a quick word from our sponsor. InvestSmart's professionally managed accounts is a digital wealth platform with diversified investment portfolios overseen by Australia's most trusted finance experts, including Paul Clitheroe, Effie Zahos, and the Money Cafe's Alan Kohler. Join thousands of Australians growing their wealth through InvestSmart's managed portfolios. Check out investsmart.com.au for more information. Dawn says, thanks for your great insight. I enjoy listening while planting veggies at this time of the year. Good for you, Dawn. Planting veggies <laughs> as you listen to Money Cafe. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Uh, she says, I attended the Qantas AGM in person, which was infuriating. Chair Richard Goiter was very disrespectful of retail shareholders and was probably disrespectful, was he, of, of Stephen Main? Uh, is that well, true? Well, I was working from home that day, but um, he... Yes, he didn't let the directors comment on some of my questions and he rejected most of my suggestions, although he did release the voting results by shares and shareholders to show that. There was 4,300 who voted, blah, blah, blah. So that was the one good thing he did. But look, I agree, he was quite arrogant. And Dawn, well done for you for being one of the 80 shareholders who turned up out of the 178,000 Qantas shareholders. And yes, Richard was a bit arrogant, but at least they ran a hybrid meeting. So you could do it from home. The, the, the webcast was pretty strong. They shouldn't have banned visitors. And I'm glad he's going. Uh, and I agree with Alan when he said that uh, Todd Sampson should have been out the door as well. And Vanessa Hudson probably shouldn't be there either. Dawn closes with the question, what is the point of an AGM? Which I think is a fair question. Look, the AGM is an insurance policy when something goes wrong, 
that is how you remove the directors. So you need an annual opportunity to sack the people you're trusting with the company. When everything's going well, it is a pointless exercise and basically it is an election announcement event because everyone votes by proxy which closes 48 hours before the meeting and it's a chance for the mum, mum and dad shareholders to have a tea and bickies with the, with the board but no one's turning up these days so it is a bit of a pointless event. It is. Except I, when there's a crisis I, like a Qantas. I know, but if there's a crisis, the shareholders who want to get rid of the board can call an extraordinary general no, meeting. No, 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 but you've got to have that. It, it scares them because people say, well, this is a bit of a cowboy behaviour. But if, if we do this, it might come up at the AGM this year. So knowing it's on every year gives you good behaviour. It stops people going off the rails. It's like having to do a performance review every year. That's what it is. It's a performance review. Matt says, if central banks increase the rate of quantitative tightening relative to interest rate tightening, would this not lead to a greater tightening of financial conditions, i.e. higher government bond yields, which would more directly deflate asset prices? If this were true, would that not be a more equitable way to transmit monetary conditions? And as an aside, stop ragging us financial advisors. We're not all terrible people, says Matt. We, don't we love think, financial advisors. We, we don't think you're cafe, all terrible people. No, we don't think that. Your whole business we, model, wasn't it? On was it was on financial advisors are a bit dodgy. People are overcharging. Uh, subscribe to Eureka Report and live live your life without a financial advisor. Isn't that your your whole meaning of life? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that, Stephen. But uh, but I do think a lot of financial advisors uh, charge too much. <laughs> but yes. Anyway, so go on. What's the so the, the question is, is should they be doing more quantitative tightening, i.e. money shredding, rather than jacking up the price of money? Well, now, they're doing both. But they should be doing more of the shredding and no. less of the increasing the price, well, I would argue. You could, you could possibly argue that. I mean, but, uh, money supply is declining everywhere and that's because that's – Bringing, tending to bring inflation down. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, I mean, I, th- I think... Uh, um, I mean, what they would have to do is, in order to sort of accelerate the quantitative tightening, they'd, they'd have to buy bonds. Um, they'd have to sell bonds to the banks. The banks would have to want to buy them. The interest rate would have to be higher. They'd be driving the price uh, down. Um uh, that would tend to drive up interest rates more than necessary, really. I just think they need to cool it a bit. Don't you think the banks should be cutting their profit margins too? I mean, they're all making $7 billion after tax. Well, their, net, their net interest margin is declining. Yeah, but it's that a is... volume game, isn't it? They're cutting their costs because they're closing branches all over the country. I just can't believe that they're still worth more than $450 billion, our big four banks. In fact, I went to the ResiMac annual meeting this week. They're worth about $500 million. They're a non-bank lender. And the chairman got up and used the phrase banking oligopoly. And he was complaining about the government printing $216 billion and giving it to the banks and therefore well, it was making it harder for them. And so I, I got him to, to defend. I said, that's a bit left-wing language from a finance guy. You don't talk about the supermarket oligopoly or the beer oligopoly or the newspaper. Well, he's defend not in yourself, that business. chairman. He's not in that business. He gave a long lecture about economic theory and government support and licensing and defending his phrase that Australia suffers from a banking oligopoly. Well, in the... In the quarterly essay, I use the word bankocracy, <laughs> which is what we have. We have a bankocracy. <laughs> <Jeez. laughs> 
Uh, Nick says, given the ever-increasing cyber threats and the clear impacts of issues like the wholesale network outage at Optus, would it make sense for critical infrastructure businesses that are listed on other exchanges to be repatriated to the ASX? Perhaps an Australian board and chair would help to decrease the risks and provide more accountability. What are you talking about, Nick? Well, Nick's basically saying, no, no, Nick is saying, can you really trust the Singaporean government with something like Optus? And shouldn't critical infrastructure be owned onshore by the government in Australia as oh. opposed to a foreign government? Oh, I see. And look, I think there's something in that, which is, you know, ports, airports, you know, networks, electricity systems. These are things that you can't afford to trust. But we've just got a laissez-faire approach where we let the Chinese government own vast tracts of our electricity system through uh, through Ausnet before it got uh, got privatised by or taken over by the Canadians recently. Chinese government can just buy up the port of Darwin, no worries about that. So I, I agree, but frankly... It's not going to happen. It's too late. We've sold everything off. The farm is gone. Uh, and Optus is sitting in the hands of the Singapore government, effectively. And they've stuffed up a couple of times now. And the CEO and apparently is, is Singa- before, the, before the politicians in Canberra as we speak this morning. Apparently Singapore Telecom caused the outage. Yes, that's right. And that's why they didn't announce it until the board had gone back to Singapore because all the heavies were out here. They caused the outage. They said, oh, because, you know, Singapore's the world's most successful dictatorship. There's no free press up there. The government never admits they've stuffed up in Singapore. So that was the culture that we saw down here, stuff up. Let's pretend we're in Singapore and we won't tell anyone what's gone wrong until we've gone back to Singapore, which is what happened. And the CEO of REA is meant to be at the... Sorry, the CEO of Optus, Kelly, is meant to be at the REA AGM in Richmond right now, but she's not. She's beaming in from Canberra in between getting grilled by the politicians. So she's got another gig on the REA board for the Murdochs and shouldn't have that job. She should be 100% on keeping the Optus network up, not making cash on some other unrelated board like REA. Next question. Your Louisa. turn. Louisa. She also, in- she also listens while she's doing the gardening. Correct. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and great to get more questions from our female listeners too. Thank you, Louisa. So super funds have a lot of money to manage. It can't be easy to keep making the returns they need. Property's been an appreciating asset over the past 30 years. The combination of rental yields and capital appreciation has made it an attractive investment for many people. And then Louisa basically goes on to say, why don't our super funds invest in residential property because it's been going up as an asset class. It's a good investment. It's huge. There's $10 trillion of it. Why is it not owned by the likes of super funds and public companies? And the answer is very simple. Because they would not be exempt from land tax like the family home. And so that becomes prohibitive to own at the corporate level because the tax rates, the council differential rates, the land taxes just make it uneconomic. So the system is designed for fragmented owner-occupied residential market in Australia. And then you've got the negative gearing puts the private investor into that space, but you just don't get the corporates mass-owning housing in Australia. The other reason is that, uh, and that's the main reason, but the other reason is that super funds regard real estate as a yield investment. They, they invest in commercial real estate, shopping centres and offices for the yield, for the, um, for the rental yield. And the fact is that rent, residential property is a capital gain investment. The yield on uh, residential property is half what it is on commercial property. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd also so say they can't it's a tax deduction 
uh, well, yes, exercise because we've got ridiculously high tax rates in Australia. Even that's right. Even though you think the third, stage three should not happen, our taxes are very high. We're paying three hundred and thirty billion a year in income tax, and a lot of people are negatively gearing no, into property I, to get that I, down I because think, it's so high. I don't agree with you about that. I don't. I think that uh, income tax in Australia is not high enough. Wait, three hundred and thirty billion is not enough. I was listening to the poor it's not a question the, of the, the, the poor CEO of ComputerShare yesterday. Right, I, I asked the question about why you're selling selling shares on the market, and he says, "Well, every time I get given my bonus shares for performing well, I have to give fifty percent to the government in tax before I've even sold the shares." This is the world's most punitive taxing regime on on share bonuses for executives, and they have to keep selling the shares to well, give 50% okay, of, their, well, of not, their shares that's, to the, That's, another that's income that's tax. That is income tax. Yes, I understand, but sure. I mean, uh, get them uh, change it so that you can don't have to pay it when you get the bonus shares, only charge the, well, the tax on the I'm ca- saying 50% on cash, is ridiculous, and the top tax rate should be 30% is what I'm saying. Of course it shouldn't. That's ridiculous, Stephen. Well, so 15, it's 15% in Hong Kong. Well, so which how do we, you, which how do we your, attract talent to Australia when we say you come here, you pay 50 percent tax surgeon which of your government being serv- a surgeon in Hong Kong which of the government services are you going to do without in order for, to achieve that I mean honestly Mate, we can print now come on we can print our way out of trouble oh I see you don't need to have the highest yeah, income yeah. taxes in the whole of Asia you can just print yeah okay let's have to- an argument about Hawke Keating to- uh, policies says- now Alan often comments glowingly on the Hawke Keating era grateful if you can reflect on three or four of these economic policies either the impact they had on them then and how they've shaped our modern economy for the better. Well, this is a long question. Uh, Stephen reckons the floating of the dollar is uh, praise is overcooked. Yeah, because everyone it would have happened anyway. Is what I'm saying. I mean, no, everyone, happened, they, they did it. They well, actually yeah, but, did it. But it's like saying independent reserve bank. I mean, they didn't do that. No, but and it was everyone's all part done that of, now. No, but it was a part of opening up the economy, and which is what was great. I mean, broadly speaking, I mean, without getting into too many details, broadly speaking, Keating opened up the economy to um, to the world. When yeah. at, that, at that point, Australia was hunkered down, closed up, yeah. protected. Tariff, yeah, he got rid of tariff protection and subsidies for manufacturers and the likes. Um, I thought the superannuation reforms were great because we now are uh, we now lend to the world. And I think dividend imputation was good and licensing foreign banks was good because banks are the arteries of the economy. Yeah, but it's never worked. Foreign banks have never gone anywhere in Australia. The, the big four still control the place. Yeah, but when, um, when we had $30 billion of write-offs in 1992 recession we had to have because Keating put rates up to 78%, about $10 billion of that was to the poor old foreign banks who regretted they'd ever taken the licences up in the first place. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, any other good policies from, from uh, Hawke Keating? Oh, I can't. I mean, I, I mean, can't tariffs. Know. Tariffs was tough, particularly given the manufacturing workers union well, and, and sort of element. Yeah, I mean, you could. There, there are arguments both reform. ways on tariffs. Budget reform too. Just balancing the budget, bringing home the bacon. I mean, the, the impression, the, the sense that I get, you know, and the memories I have of those era, those times, was we had a treasurer who actually understood the economy hmm. and knew what was going on and was able to communicate correct. You know. You, you, Communicate properly about what was going on, and um, you know, was he he got it, and he made us all very economically literate. He did because he was so lyrical and brilliant as a communicator. He educated the nation as he reformed the nation. I remember when he did that Repu- Banana Republic speech uh, from his mum's kitchen. That no, was the kitchen in the Hunter Valley, and he was getting scowled at by the lady doing the dishes because he, yeah. he was in her kitchen. Oh, I see. As yeah. she was okay. doing the dishes, I thought it was his mum. But anyway. And it was just—it was just off the cuff. 
He was raving down to the phone, you know, if we don't, if we don't fix the place up, we'll become a banana republic. And, and, I, was dollar, running, and I was in year 10. I was and the dollar the, went to 58 <coughs> cents that day. It fell four cents in a day. It was reckless. And I don't think it should no, be it celebrated. It was reckless. I mean, I, no, well, see, the thing is, I was editor of the Financial Review on that day. And someone told me at lunchtime about it because he was on 3GB or something. 2, 2G, uh, 2GB with 2GB. John Laws. It was He's John on, Laws' interview. Sorry, yeah. he was on John Laws. And someone told me about it. And I thought, right, this is page one tomorrow. So I got a transcript of it and put it on page one. And it was a big story. Yeah, yeah. Now, Nick says there was an article in the City we got one. We've got time week. for one more question. Is this the one we want? Oh, well, look, actually, we've already covered with Nick's one. He's basically saying that inflation and wage increases should take into account taxes because you've got to pay. You lose half in tax, so that's a fair point. So, look, you can pick the one we're going to finish with, uh, Alan, in terms of... Um, I like the David one, actually, where he says that Money Cafe is basically fantastic. Question 10, he says it's fantastic because we've gone from having a begging bowl to the rest of the world to being a lender to the rest of the world because we've got this $3 trillion of super savings and we now have over a trillion dollars of investments all over the world. And I'll give you one little anecdote about this. I remember when I was working for the Kenner government and we were about to float Tabcor in 1994 and Western Mining did a $700 million capital raising the week before and this was a disaster for the Tabcor float because it had drained a lot of the savings pool out of the equity markets that we were hoping was going to prop up the Tabcor float which came in at the bottom of the range of $2.25 versus the top of the range $2.70. Now we just raised $100 billion in the GFC raisings without blinking because we've just got this this huge savings pool to fund the nation and we invest in the rest of the world. Back then, there was a limited amount of capital for our public companies. And uh, David's question is, do you think there needs to be more messaging to the general public about the unseen and unappreciated benefits of the current $3 trillion private savings pool? And uh, I agree with that. And uh, we agree. But... Yes, we do. It only just nets off the, the total household debt. So all that's really happened is you've got $3 trillion of household debt and $3 trillion of household super, and there's net nothing. But the housing market's gone through the roof, so there's $7 trillion of equity in the housing market because there's $10 trillion of stock, $3 trillion of debt, and $7 trillion of national wealth in, in owned homes. And that is the core of Australian wealth, the, over, the bubbled up property market. Which, is, which has made Australian housing by, unaffordable. And is propped up by record levels of immigration. And the moment you turn off the immigration tap, housing right. will come under a bit of pressure. Yeah, mate. Well, that's probably right. We're done. Thanks for listening, everyone, to today's episode of The Money Cafe. I'll be back next week with James Thompson. So if you have a question for us, um, email it to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Please keep it short. Uh, we got, well, we get, we're getting a bit too many questions. than we 20 can. this week. We've we got have. 20 questions. We can't possibly answer them all. So we do our best. We'll choose the questions we like the most. <laughs> so anyway, till next week. I'll be Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report, finance presenter on ABC News and columnist for the New Daily. And I'm Stephen Main. See you in a fortnight.